Well, good evening. Okay. Whew. There was like a pause there. I thought everyone was already out. Everybody doing all right tonight? All right. Good. Hey, thank you guys so much for being here. We really are thankful, as Joel mentioned earlier, that you would, many of you, sacrifice to be here, to make room in the earlier services. And we welcome you. We thank you that you're here. And tonight, we are going to be diving into our second sermon in this new series on Genesis. And if you were here last week, you heard Joel do a big overview of the creation of the whole world. One of the main points that Joel drew out for us, a point that we're going to continue to use as a lens for us as we look at this series in Genesis, is we're trying to see the big picture of what God is doing here. He's doing something that's important something that is bigger than the minutiae and the details of how he created everything, something that we get bogged down in sometimes. God is trying to help us to see who he is. He's revealing who he is to us. He's depicting out of the gate that he is an almighty and an all-powerful creator. He's introducing himself to us. This is his introduction to mankind. He's showing us what his purposes are, what his character is like, and his nature. He's showing how, as a creator, our creator, he relates to us and he interacts with us, his creation. And in what we're going to look at today, the creation of mankind in particular, we're going to see how God does something even further. We're going to see how he begins to answer one of the biggest questions in the heart and in the minds of mankind, something that lingers deeply in every one of us. Now, some of us pay more attention to this question, and some of us do all that we can to ignore it, but it's deep in each person. It's the question of identity. And we ask this question in a lot of different ways, things like this, who am I? Who am I meant to be? What is my purpose in life? Why am I even here? Is my life valuable at all? Do I matter? Is there any meaning or point or direction to life? These are the questions, these core questions that revolve around our identity, our value, and our purpose in life. And I want us to see today that God is speaking to these fundamental questions of the human heart. And his answer, it's not unrelated to the initial question that we are seeing God answer about who he is and how he works. It's actually vital that we see that the only way that we can begin to answer the question that we have about ourselves and who we are and what our purpose is, is that it is in direct relation to who God is, how our value and our purpose are directly related to him. So that's where we're going today. If you want to turn to Genesis, you don't have to go very far. We're still in Genesis chapter 1. It's also in your worship guide. We're going to start reading in verse 26. So Genesis 1:26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. 
And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on earth. Now look at chapter 2, verse 5 with me. When no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. This is the word of the Lord. Pray with me. Lord, as we come to you tonight, we come humbly. We know that we are creatures. You are God. And we ask you right now by the power of your spirit to speak to us through your word. We want to know who we are. We want to know who you are. God, we ask that you will reveal yourself to us, that we will have minds and hearts that are attentive and that are soft to hear your word today. Lord, you know the word that each of us needs. And so we ask you to speak it. Lord, ask that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart will be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In your name, amen. So as we read the fuller account of this creation act of God, everything that has preceded this moment that we just read about, we see that God has already made the earth and the ground, the air and the seas, the sun, the moon, the stars. Then he begins to fill the earth with living creatures, the creatures that live in the water, the creatures that fill the air. And then today, in day six, as we're reading, he creates the creatures that fill the earth, the land. In the same manner of description of everything that has preceded it, God simply speaks and things come into being. And then he declares them good. But God is not done yet. In fact, his creative process is about to reach its pinnacle. The crown of God's creation, the climax, is the creation of mankind. So at the core of this text, what we're going to look at today, and at the core of the questions that we asked earlier about ourselves and our lives, about human existence, is this concept of being made in the image of God. Now, it should come as no surprise to any of you that there has been a lot written about this image of God, a lot proposed and discussed and contended and argued. What exactly does this image of God mean? And rightly so, because this is pretty important to understanding our existence on earth. So yes, let's look at what the image of God means. Now, obviously, we're made in the image of God. That means that we're different from all the rest of God's creation. We're special. We are distinct from God's other creatures. But what does this really mean? Now, there are a lot of things that could be said, healthy, accurate, fruitful things that could be said about what the image of God means, far more than we can dive into tonight. So I want us to just look at three things that are central to this concept of humankind being made in the image of God. 
Three things that will help us to understand better those questions we asked. Who is God and who are we? So the first absolutely essential part about being made in the image of God is that humans, uniquely so, are able to be in relationship with God, our Creator. Now, there are many indicators here in the text that draw out that humans are set apart from everything else that God has created, that even in the process of creation itself, God is interacting with humans in a different kind of way. Moses, our author here, he's building towards the creation of man with ascending importance of every creative act that we've seen. As we come to the sixth day of creation, God has just created the land animals, but now we see that there's actually a pause. There's kind of a shift here. God looks and says that it is good what he has just done, but now he's about to do something different. So we actually get to listen into a dialogue amongst the Trinity in which God is discussing his divine intentions, the design of God to create mankind. We see in verse 26, the writing shifts to the plural voice. We see we. Look with me again at 126. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. So now with the full revelation that we have in all of Scripture of Jesus as the Word, the Apostle John, he says in his gospel that Jesus is there at creation. So we have God the Father, we have Jesus who is present and contributing at creation, and we see that God's Spirit is hovering over the waters. We see the inner relational dynamic of the Trinity, and we see a sort of discussion about what the Trinity is about to do here. Now, I don't know if you've ever experienced this. Maybe it's just me, but I imagine that you probably have. When I'm in a conversation with my wife, I can tell when she's about to be talking about something that's important to her. The conversation kind of shifts. It takes on a different tone. I mean, we're usually talking about kind of mundane, everyday things, you know, groceries and schedules and how our children are angels and never do anything wrong at all. You know, if you guys know my kids, that's obvious. Hey, easy. But her tone shifts. There's a pause. And I can tell that she's about to say something that's important. She's about to prepare me for something she's about to say. So maybe it would sound like this. Okay, Dwight, so I've been thinking. And I always know I'm in trouble at that point. It's, it's going to be a big one. Or maybe it sounds like this. All right, so I've got an idea, but before I tell you what the idea is, I want to tell you how I got there. What she's doing is that she is preparing me for the substantive conversation we're going to have, more than the grocery list. It's the dialogue before the dialogue. Before she's even started talking about the thing, she's preparing me to talk about the thing. And this is something we all do. It's what we see happening here with the Trinity. In every act of creation prior to this moment, God has repeatedly spoken and something simply comes into being immediately. Let there be, and by the power of his word, it is. But here, God is slowing down. He is declaring within himself about this glorious thing that he's about to do. We see repetition of lines and phrases. We see 
the behind-the-scenes look of what's about to happen. We see what actually happens from multiple perspectives. We see a description of what has just happened after it's happened. God is making it clear that this creative act is different. In chapter 2, we see that rather than speaking humans into existence, God gets his hands dirty, and he interacts with humanity in our creation. He actually takes dust from the ground, and he forms and fashions us. This phrasing, it's different from how God has created all other things. The language here is that of a craftsman intentionally, carefully forming his creation. Imagine a potter who is meticulously and lovingly shaping a masterful work into being. And then God takes this dust that he's just formed and he breathes life into it. This is a highly intimate and personal interaction. Imagine God placing his face against the face of man. In chapter two, in chapter two, verse seven, we see that the name of God that is used here is a different name as well. The God who takes this dirt is called Yahweh Elohim. This is the personal covenantal name of God that he uses with his people. It's not yet been used in the creation account here in Genesis. This is the name that is revealed to Moses personally from God. And this name is the one that's used to connect humanity's first breath of life with the intimate name of the God who created them, Yahweh. So what's being described here from the beginning? It's a unique, it's a personal, it's a hands-on creation account. And it depicts God as one who is deeply connected and involved in the life of his creation. So remember here, big picture, God is revealing to us who he is and who we are. So what's revealed in this? Who is God? He's near, he's active, he's present, and he's intimately connected to mankind. And he doesn't just create man in this personal way and then leave us. This breath of life, which gives man his being, imparts the very image of God. In this moment of creation, God is forever connecting himself to man and man to him. So who are we in light of this? We're God's loved creation who in our very core being reflect him. Our identity is described by our connection to him. And it's vital for us to realize here that God is introducing himself as a God who enters into relationship with mankind. Being made in his image means that we have the capacity to be in a relationship with him, the creator of all the universe. We are made in a way that irrefutably reflects our creator's care for us. Now, I have a son. He's five years old, and recently we both got haircuts. <laughs> so I've been hearing more than ever lately how much we look alike. Now, my son, Mac, it's obvious to anyone who knows us that when you look at him, he's my son. He bears my image. When you look at him, you see certain physical qualities and traits that remind you of me, of who I am. And moreover, this is merely a visual indicator of the fact that I'm in deep relationship with him. He's my son. He's the very product of my genes and my DNA, and I love him. 
and I long to know him and to care for him. And this is what God is describing. When he says that we are made in his image and he describes that intimate process, this means that God is deeply relational and that we are made to be in relationship with him. And this relationship from the beginning, it's good and right and pure. Now we're gonna look in more detail in a few weeks what's to come. But at this point, we see that mankind walks with God in the garden. He's communing with God in unbroken fellowship. This is what the image of God in us was intended to be as God made it. But being made in the image of God does not just mean that we're made with the capacity to be in relationship with our creator. That's the first point. Secondly, it also means that as those made to bear his image, we have God-given an irrefutable dignity. Psalm 8.5 says that God has crowned us with glory and honor, making us a little lower than God. Now, that's a bold statement. I don't know if you heard that. When I read that, I wondered if I actually read that right. How can David say that a little lower than God? Why exactly is it that we have such value? Well, it's because of who we represent. Our value and our worth lies in the fact that God has placed in us a resemblance of his glory. God is sacred, and so humans are sacred because we are made in his likeness. Being made in the image of God means this, that we are physical and we are spiritual beings. Obviously, we're physical. We have bodies and we live within the physical confines of this world. However, when God breathed his life into us and he imparted his image into us, we were also made as spiritual beings. So we have souls. Though our bodies will eventually fail and fade, our souls are eternal, just as God is. So we're creatures with both a physical component and a spiritual component. So God's made us to connect to him in this way and to reflect him in this way. We connect by being in relationship with God. We reflect with certain types of attributes that represent him to the world. Things like his love, his wisdom, his orderliness, his patience. These are attributes of God that are passed on to humans and which point back to him. So when I look at my son, Mac, not only do I see certain physical attributes that reflect the image of his parents, but I see character attributes. I see qualities. I see the desire for order and an intelligence that reflects his mother. I see selflessness and love for others that reminds me of who she is when I see those in him. In the same way, when we look at humans, we can get a glimpse of our creator. We see his beauty when we marvel at the beauty in another person. We can see his patience when we're not treated as we deserve, but we're treated with grace. We can see his love for us when we experience the deep love of another. Not only does all of this bring God glory, but since we reflect his glory to others in these ways, this gives every single human life incredible value. In his sermon entitled The Weight of Glory, C.S. Lewis says this, there are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. 
nations, cultures, arts, civilizations. These are mortal, and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. If immor- it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. He goes on to say that this means that when you're considering another human being made in God's image, there can be no flippancy, no superiority, no presumption. So if God has made all humans to reflect him, then we must cherish every single human life, regardless of whether or not that person thinks or acts or lives in a way that seems to warrant it. God warrants it for them. This means that it doesn't matter if you differ from someone on political views. It doesn't matter if you differ from them on worldviews. It doesn't matter if you respect their opinions or their decisions or their patterns of living. They are made in the image of God, as are you. And the image of God in every person bears the divinely established dignity and worth that supersedes everything else in all of creation. This is why Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount that not only should we not murder, but we shouldn't even say hateful things to our brother or sister. What does this do? This eradicates the potential for any racism, classism, sexism, ageism, nationalism, or any other possible possible form of discrimination. It stands against the idea that life, any human life, is of lesser value if there are abnormalities or special needs. It means that life in the womb and life out of the womb, both matter. It means that no matter the qualities of intelligence, education, nationality, or upbringing, none of it can justify the mistreatment, the subjugation, the oppression, or the abuse of any single person. Injustice against an image bearer is an assault on the image of God. Every human life reflects the image of our Creator God and is of divine value. This is what God sees with his eyes, and it's what we must strive to see with our eyes as well. Now, you might have been nodding your head and amening that, but maybe not. Maybe this bothers you. Maybe it seems like an affront to your sense of significance that people who are different from you are equally valuable to God. Maybe you were taught to think that you and people like you are better than other people. Maybe you have to strive against those lies that you were told to believe, even at a young age. I think it's safe to say that we all bear prejudices of some kind or another, and we need Jesus to help us shed these sins of the past that have been handed down to us. As we learned in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is more concerned with our hearts and our underlying motives than our external actions. We must ask God's Spirit to constantly check our hearts and reveal any ways that we may be subtly treating anybody different. Tim Keller, in his book, Generous Justice, he describes that Aristotle is well known for saying how some people were born to be slaves, while others inherently warranted more dignity and value. Keller reflects that most modern Americans would never condone this view. And yet he says this, Aristotle was merely reflecting on our natural limitations. 
Does our actual experience in life lead us to believe that every human being is equally valuable and has equal dignity? No. The default mode of the human heart is to label some people barbarians. We still do this today. Isn't it true that there are times that we could be so annoyed or so bothered or so opposed or even disgusted with someone else who doesn't think or act exactly like us that we can be tempted to think of them not just as wrong, but as barbaric, as less than us, as even less than human? The belief of the image of God makes no allowance for this. Now, there are some of us in here that don't struggle as much with viewing others in this way as we do ourselves. You struggle to see worth and value in yourself. You don't see yourself as valuable, as wanted, as loved. Maybe it's your appearance, and you do everything you can, even to unhealthy degrees, to change that. Maybe you don't like that particular trait about yourself, but you can't seem to escape it or change it. Maybe it's a rebellious past that haunts you or a sin that easily entangles you, a pervasive loneliness or a sense of not belonging, a fear of rejection, a fear of being known, a fear of being unknown. Friend, whatever the reason that you struggle to believe that you have worth or value, I have a word for you. God, your creator, promises otherwise. He loves you. Do you hear me? He loves you. He made you and he sustains you. And he says that you are of incredible value, not because of anything you've done or anything that you could do. No, you bear the image of God. He loves you and desires you and knows you because you are his. Whatever lies you're hearing, know the simple fact that you are valuable and you're loved by your creator. All right, we have to move on. So number one, the image of God means that we have the capacity to be in relationship with God. Number two, it means that we have God-given dignity and value. And number three, it means that we have been given dominion. So whereas the first two speak to our value and our identity, the third speaks to our purpose. When God created mankind, he did not just bring us into existence and then leave us aimless and without direction. He initiates mankind into his role, into his task. People are to have dominion over everything that God has created, over all of the animals and over the land itself. They're to exercise this authority and this leadership over all of creation. Another word that we could use to describe this here is that we are appointed as stewards over everything. That word isn't one that we commonly use in everyday language, so it's important that we know what we're talking about, and specifically that we oppose stewardship with ownership. God has not given us ownership over everything, or it would be ours. Rather, Scripture is clear that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness therein, the world and all those who dwell therein. That's Psalm 24. No, we're not the owners, but rather the stewards. God has entrusted to us the care of his creation. So we see an example of this in Matthew 25 in the parable of the talents. The master of the house goes away on a long journey and he entrusts some money to his servants. 
When he returns, each of the servants have to give an account for how they have used his money. If at any point they had begun to think of that money as their own, they would have made a gross error. Rather, they always kept in mind that it was not theirs, though they were responsible for it. So in Genesis, God blesses man, and he says to care for all that he has created. We see Adam immediately stepping into this role. He gathers all of the animals, and he names them. Even though this is something that God could have easily done himself, he gives it to Adam to do. It's interesting. We look in in chapter 2, verse 19, it says that God brought all of the animals to Adam to see what he would call them. It's as if God creates man, he initiates man into his purpose, and then he steps back to watch him begin to live into his calling. So what is Adam doing in this act? He's exhibiting the God-given quality of bringing order from disorder. He's reflecting his creator by organizing the created order with the authority given to him. Adam continues to reflect his creator by pursuing relationship. No fit helper or companion can be found for Adam. So God creates Eve, and they enter into marriage. Shortly after Adam and Eve conceive and bear children, and chapter 5 says, Adam fathered a son in his own likeness, after his image. So God is the creator of mankind, this physical, spiritual being. And after telling Adam and Eve to multiply and fill the earth, we see that they continue to reflect their creator by making their own physical, spiritual beings. So God also puts Adam and Eve in the garden, and he says to work it and to keep it. They are given work. Now, bear in mind, this is before sin enters the world through their disobedience. So we see that God's design for mankind, for humans, is to work in the places that he has put them and that this is good. Only after the fall does work become toilsome. God's purpose for man is to care for, to nurture, and to keep the things in whatever place and context that God has put in front of them. In many ancient cultures, kings would make statues or images of themselves and have them placed over the various outreaches, the outskirts of their domain, of their kingdom, as a testimony to their sovereign rule and authority. Though the king himself was not present at each of those places, it was a physical reminder, a tangible image that he was still ruling. And in many ways, this is what God is doing by creating man in his image and commanding us to fill the earth as his authoritative stewards. God is clearly depicting that we are his royal representatives, given full authority and dominion to care for his kingdom. So to pick back up the analogy of my son, Mac, we've recently tasked Mac with a certain responsibility. His one job is to feed Maisie, our dog. Every day, now we've entrusted this task to him. He is our representative. He's commissioned into this work as part of his participation in our family. He doesn't have an option anymore to not feed Maisie. It has been given to him as his purpose, and he can choose to joyfully enter into this. But this care for Maisie doesn't mean that he can abuse Maisie or that he can mistreat her or neglect her. 
No, he will dishonor his parents if he does, and he will have to answer to us. But rather, he should treat Maisie in the way that her owner would treat her, that I would treat her. He must reflect the intentions and the nature of his parents who've entrusted him with this task. So how has God exercised his rule and authority over us? In creation, he gave of himself. When he breathed his image into us, he demonstrated that he is a self-giving God who cares for us. Now, when we exercise this loving care and this selfless rule over God's creation, we reflect him and give glory to him. This is the definition of worship. God has commissioned us into a purpose, a life of beautiful, creative, caring stewardship in whatever context he's placed us in. So as we work and we keep our varied and particularized gardens, we are entering into worship. This is our spiritual act of service to God as his image bearers, and we get to receive the joy and the fulfillment of obeying this calling. So as we discuss and we ponder the meaning and the effects of being made in the image of God, we need look no further than Jesus. If we wonder what this is supposed to look like, look at the life of Jesus. We read it earlier, Colossians 1.15. It says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Jesus was the fullest physical, spiritual man that there ever was. 100% God, not just a reflection of God, and 100% man, the truest human there's ever been, the most human human. We can see how Jesus actually fulfilled in a fuller way, each of these three aspects of the image of God. What about a capacity for relationship? Jesus is in total and complete unity with the Father and the Spirit, an unbroken, perfect relationship for all of eternity. What about an innate value and dignity that represents God? Jesus didn't just represent the glory of God, Paul says that he is the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, the image of God. What about the task of caring for God's creation? Jesus had all of the authority of the Father and was obedient to the Father in the task that had been given to him to redeem mankind with his own blood. Jesus, the perfect image of God, gave of himself on the cross through his death and his resurrection, we can now be restored image bearers, restored into a right relationship with God. So zoom way back out to our initial questions here. Who am I? Does my life matter? What is my purpose? From the beginning, we see that God has answered our deep questions. He gives us purpose. He gives us significance. He gives us himself this doesn't answer all of our questions by any means, but God has given us what we need. We can live with confidence, with self-assurance. We can know that we are God's valued creation, and we know that whatever the particular things are that we do, we do them as stewarding his resources, and he gives us joy in that. All of life is worship when we realize that everything is from him and through him and to him. So let's walk in that joy and that confidence this week with Jesus as our hope, 
who has already walked that road perfectly. Pray with me. God, thank you that you didn't just create us purposeless, distant, aimless. Lord, we don't have to walk around in life as if that were the case. We don't have to walk around confused, perplexed, wondering what you have for us. Lord, we know that you've created us to reflect you. You've given us all things. Everything that we have is yours. And Lord, you call us to just worship you and to look to you and to point to you in all that we do. Thank you, Lord, that we have this confidence that we can continue to celebrate what you have done and who you are, that you want to know your creation. You want to be with us. Lord, thank you for this awesome fact. Help us to live into this truly, to be confident, to be joyful, because we know that we are yours. Thank you, Jesus, for this truth. In your name, amen.